TBCC episode 28, my realization of the day. If I've learned from anything in horror movies, we need a new name for imaginary friends. They always turn out to be real, you know, just something beyond an adult's comprehension. Have imaginary friends always been explained as fake, just standing in for the ongoing phobia of parenthood? The fear is real, y'all. The fear is real. You hear that that creaking in your background right now? It is not the ghost in your bathroom. It is me all up in your ears. Hello, hello. It is your boy, Devon Taylor, a.k.a. underscore Daddy Disco on Twitter and Instagram, a.k.a. I am Toby's bitch after watching all six of the Paranormal Activity movies. That's what we're talking about today. We are in week three of Lost and Found, our found footage month here on the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. Um, BBCC is a podcast where we dive through the subgenres of horror and talk about our favorite horror films with guests from all around the horror community. And we are talking a lot of movies today, guys. We are going into another franchise. Um, we have covered as far as like franchises go. We did Child's Play over a few episodes, and then we did the Halloween franchise uh, last last month. And for this one, I was kind of split on how I wanted to do it, whether I wanted to give each movie its own episode or just kind of let it be its own thing. Um, but the, the the story is the overarching thing here. Like, in my opinion, the Paranormal Activity series is a sum of its parts and it it there's just a, it plays so much better on marathon mode. So we're just going to talk about all of them for this episode because there are going to be like some that we don't talk about as much as the others as well. But we're looking at the big picture here. So I had to not only bring in one guest, I brought in two guests to chat the Paranormal Activity franchise for this month. So sitting in the wings right now, we have Jerry Smith. He is a writer for Dread Central and Wicked Horror and the host of the Pod and Pendulum podcast. Say what's up, Jerry. How's it going? Thank you for having me on this. I I love this series so much, so I'm so stoked to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I I was happy because you actually like reached out to me uh, wanting to talk about it. And like, that's whenever I'm always like, okay, they're they're here for the party now. So very, yeah, yeah, very happy to have you. And then on the other side, we have host of the Night of the Living Academic podcast. This horror enthusiast is going for a PhD in creepy. It is Caitlin Duffy. Welcome to the show. Hi, uh, thanks for having me here, too. I'm also very excited. This is one of my favorite franchises. You know, it's it's like it's so crazy because like, I mean, I love found footage films, but I don't know if it was just. I didn't want to look at these films because they were, like, as big as they were. I just didn't think about them as much. But then, like, I don't know, it was, like, six months ago, I watched a couple of those YouTube videos where they, like, were kind of, like, explaining the whole timeline again. And then I was, like, and, like, that's what gets me in, like, franchises being able to 
connect and come back and do the things that they did. So I have a like much greater appreciation, and hopefully after the end of this episode, uh, the audience will have a better appreciation as well. That's what this whole podcast and month has been about, putting some respect on found footage films. Yeah, I like that. I've, I've taught this movie, actually, uh, to my film class. I've also taught Blair Witch, and unfortunately, not a lot of people give it the respect it deserves, I feel like. But usually by the end of my class, my lectures where I just go on and on about how good these things are and how much we should love them, usually I can get some converts over. So hopefully I can do that here too. You're doing you're doing the Dark Lord's work, uh, educating the <laughs> masses. Like, I absolutely yes. love that. And Jerry, what's like your uh, kind of special connection to this podcast, if you have one? Well, I think found franchise. footage. Sorry, okay. I think no, no worries. I think found footage, when done right, can be one of the most effective kinds of uh, horror. Uh, you know, obviously, when Blair Witch came out, after that, you got a long, like a big string of like just kind of copycat films, and you know, like the value of them decreased. But Blair Witch, and especially Paranormal Activity, these are films that like changed the genre in so many ways. You know, I, I remember reading on like, you know, Dread Central, Blood Disgusting and all these sites back in the day, you know, kind of whispers about paranormal activity. I didn't know what it was. You know, it didn't have that wide release yet. And there was this grassroots campaign where you tried to get it to come to your theater because it wasn't going to go mm -hmm. wide release at first. You know, and I spent days and days trying to get this to go to my local theater to the point where at, at the credits of the first film, there's all these people that worked really hard to get it to go wide. And my name is in the credits because like in, in my small city that I was from, like this was a movie that we all just wanted to see. And it's a film that starts out small. And that's what I love about the franchise. The first film's very contained and very small. But by the time you get to the last film, Ghost Dimension, it's such a huge universe uh, you know, there's so many like parallels between characters and it, it just becomes something really huge and big. And I've always said that the worst paranormal activity movie is better than some of the better films in other franchises. You know, you'll, you'll get people that defend Halloween six or Jason goes to hell. Like both of those on their best day can't even top the worst paranormal activity. You know, I will I will totally agree with that. It's um they it changed the game in many ways, you know, not only just because of kind of the the style because he did um you know, the first paranormal activity did kind of put a different style from what we were getting, but yet at the same time it was like I can see where like on the outside looking in it was like they were doing that thing where they they followed the saw model and they were putting out the movie every single year for like, you know, so I remember not like loving the first two of them. And then I was kind of like, and then I was like, okay, like now they're just going to be up oh, another one up. Oh, there's another one. And I like, you know, started losing track of like, which was which, but I guess it was just like, I didn't put as much attention to it because like, this was like at the height of found footage where there were so many coming out because this is where people went, Oh, we can make this movie for absolutely nothing. Anybody can make a film. We're going to put a premise on something, and it's going to be this genuine found footage film. And yeah, so there, it, it was just so deeply saturated 
that it kind of forced me to, of course, ignore just like it was the biggest. But then now revisiting, I was like, there's a reason it was the biggest and, you know, kind of special to what it was. So we're going to get real deep into the Paranormal Activity series uh, here in a second, um, just so we can kind of get to know our guests a little bit more. Um, I want to know, you know, your guys' horror backgrounds a little bit. So I'll say, like, what is, like, you know, like, when did you get into horror? And then, aside from found footage, what's another favorite subgenre of yours? I could jump in. Uh, so I, I got into horror, I think, pretty a pretty common way. Um, I started off really young, actually, with the uh, Universal Monsters uh, films. My grandfather was obsessed with the Universal Monster movies, and he had a, like, a big VHS box set. So anytime uh, my grandparents babysat me, which was like almost every weekend, um, it would just be me sitting there watching and rewatching and rewatching all of the Universal Monster movies. So that got me really into it. And then later when I was in middle school, I had a teacher who showed us for movie club. He showed us Psycho and Misery, and that sort of like sealed the deal for me, I guess. I got very obsessed. Um, another favorite subgenre, uh, I'm going to go... It changes all the time. Earlier, I would have said slashers, but I think I'm going to go folk horror right now. But again, it changes day to day. <laughs> yeah, just kind of it kind of depends on yeah what what is happening in the horror world at the time. Yeah, but um, you you kind of had a I, I, I don't know I wouldn't say traditional horror upbringing, but like you know a lot of people you know that is kind of the way getting introduced to Universal monster movies and like. I didn't get into those until a little bit later. Um, so those are, that's one area that I'm like still going back is like I'm not well versed in like classic horror whatsoever. But yeah. it makes sense for you, you know, being the academic of the trio oh, yes. here. Um, <laughs> and then what about you, Jerry? Uh, for me, I got into horror through a really bad period of my life. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I went to stay summers with my mom and she married a man that was was just the most diabolically evil person I've ever come across. I was very badly uh, just abused by this guy, like sexually abused as a child. It was just the worst existence for a whole entire year of my life. And my mom was a nurse at the time. And to get me away from this dude, she would give me enough money to stay in the theater that we lived next door to from the moment she went to work until the moment she got home from work every single day. Every single day, I spent my entire day of that, those summers in the theater. And this was pre-Columbine, so they didn't really card kids in it. And if you had a note from your parents, you know they were fine with you watching anything, which was awful in the 80s because there's so many things I watched way too young. And the first film that I watched, what, you know, I had no idea what it was. I just saw a poster, and it looked kind of creepy and cool. And as being seven years old in a theater by myself, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go into this movie. And it was Halloween 4. And hmm. seven years old, by myself in a theater, I watched Halloween 4, and it scared the living shit out of me. But at the same time, I realized at that moment, and it, it's crazy that I realized it at such a young age, that we could live vicariously through these characters. You know, mm -hmm. I, I saw the character of Jamie Lloyd in Halloween 4, and it was a character that, that you know, that survived, that mm -hmm. fought to survive and all these things. And so I suddenly became obsessed with horror 
at the age of seven. You know, but I also thought I was an alien at the time because I didn't know anyone else that was into horror movies. And then <laughs> when I was nine, when I was nine, I discovered Fangoria magazine. And it felt like I was in on a secret, you know, that there was this kind of like subculture of other people that were weird like me. And so that that kind of spawned this lifelong obsession with horror. And, you know, like I, I love I always say that the loves of my life is, you know, my wife, my kids and horror. Like mm -hmm. it's like a trinity. Like it, It'll never be broken like that. Those are the three most important things in my life. The dark and, trinity. Oh, totally. And, you know, I spent my entire life loving the genre. And, you know, I got into writing through different sites. You know, I started out with Icons of Fright for a while. And then I went to Fangoria, Blumhouse.com and a bunch of others. And, you know, what I do now, I you know, I write professionally and, and I do it 100% because of that moment when I was seven and I discovered the best genre around. Uh, as far as other uh, or like subgenres that I kind of gravitate towards i've always been a slasher fanatic like it's just my favorite thing in the world especially 80s films yeah i mean of course like yeah when you come up in in that era um you definitely gravitate towards the slashers but i do love that like how you kind of you know found the found the solace in in horror movies and that's like something that is funny like whenever i try to explain it to other people that just like don't get that feeling you know get that the the comforting feeling of seeing something and then you being able to you know take your fear and and, and displace it somewhere else you know other than what's actually going on in in the real life like you know that's why I, I like tell people I don't watch documentaries because I was like, I don't need to know what's, you know, I, I already know what the real world is, what's happening right now. And I'm good on that. I don't need to know more. I want to know more about what's, you know, happening in this else world. And and like you said, like in, you know, gravitating towards a, a survivor, you know, when you were kind of put, in, put into a situation where, you know, you were in uh, darker times and needed that uh needed that like you know that comfort but then also that that safety as well you know and and um horror is so empowering in that way uh it's the best no totally i mean horror has always been the genre that i think people could relate to you know you get you know and i was also growing up i was also born into this very religious family that you know i always had to fight as a kid to defend horror and my love for it because you know i had to go to church as a kid and they'd have bonfires that would and my parents would make me throw all of my movies and my my, my tapes and cassettes and cds into the fire oh, no. you know because they were of the devil you know but uh you know it's it's through the laurie strodes it's through the jamie lloyds and it's definitely through the sally hardesty's of the world that I found comfort as a kid. I mean, there's that shot at the end of Texas Chainsaw where Sally is in the back of the truck screaming kind of crazy by what's going on. But what did she do? She endured. She survived. And as a kid, I mean, those were profound moments seeing characters having gone through absolute hell and come out still living. Like, it was huge for me. Um, I just want to say thank you for shouting out Sally because she is – one final girl that is left off a list too often and she's absolutely one of the best. So, uh, thank you for shouting out Sally for, for one, but yeah, like, uh, when, when you watch horror movies, we, we all become the final girl, you know? And, and that's where, you know, where 
when we get into the found footage stuff, you know, we're kind of blending that horror and reality, you know, on why found footage is a little bit more fun because you're just like that much closer to like the fear being real, but yet it's still not. Um, so, so we're there. And then so as, so Jerry started watching when he was seven. I started watching horror movies when I was seven. Caitlin, how old were you? I actually might have been seven because we moved near my grandparents uh, when I was in second grade, which might have been around seven. Huh. I don't really remember how old I was in second grade, though. But whatever that is. Cease? Yeah, second second yeah. grade is usually seven, seven, seven. It's the number of God. Huh. It's horror. Huh. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to do with this information, but we have it now. That is yeah. so interesting. Uh, yeah, such a such a unique age like I was yeah definitely watching like the hardcore stuff at seven that I was like and then going and trying to talk to other second graders about what I just watched like (laughs) just it just didn't work yeah so we are going to go ahead and dive into our franchise now that we are uh nice and warmed up for this conversation Paranormal Activity, the first one was released in 2009, but the origins of this uh, franchise go back uh, as early as 2006. It took a couple years before it actually got off the ground. And uh, um, there's, so there's six movies in this franchise total, and we're going to go through them in the way that they were released, not in the chronological, because this uh, franchise, the timeline jumps like, jumps around all over the place so we got a lot of stuff but i did find some consistencies that across most of the franchise uh we'll call it our paranormal activity drive-in totals um to look out for as we discuss this um discuss the entire franchise so in paranormal activity we have a lot of we have neck snaps we have creepy kids we have a coven of old lady demon worshipers We have pets that are way smarter than the adults. We have falling kitchens. We have talking to Toby. We have getting dragged by Toby. Toby playing with technology, time travel, and lots and lots and lots of videotapes. So, Paranormal Activity, released in 2009. Written, directed, and edited by Oren Pele. And it was definitely not meant to be a franchise. It was a very contained story um and by like if you know like the other endings it was definitely like not meant to be um you know go out into the franchise world but uh paramount bought up the rights to this and they saw the potential in it so they had a lot of things reshot they uh did a different ending and but still maintained you know the dna of what was going on and then uh this would be the only film that pele would be a part of Oren would produce a couple more of them but he was only um had like you know creative say in this one he shot it on an actual home video camera to you know get that authenticity that we love to see in found footage films um he used the technique of retro scripting which is like you know um we talked about it in the creep episode and a couple other uh episodes as well as where you kind of don't really have a script it's just outlines and scenarios and he would let the actors kind of interpret them the way that they would 
Uh, Mika Sloat, uh, the main char- uh, the male main character in this, he was a cameraman in his uh, college days at the college TV station. So he was operating the camera himself for a majority of the film, and so he already kind of had that background, um, which definitely helped out for the film as well. So, the first Paranormal Activity movie. What are your guys' general thoughts on the opening entry here? I'm a huge fan of it. I I think what makes the first film so special is how contained it feels. It feels very, like, personal. You know, you get these two characters that have such good chemistry together that it's easy for you to kind of latch on to these characters and care about what what they're going through. And, you know, Mm -hmm. any... Not complaints, because to be honest, I love every film in this entire series. But I think the weaker moments in the series, it's because you can you could kind of sense the acting. And I think in the first film, you never really feel like they're acting because of that kind of skeleton approach. You know, give someone a skeleton of what's going to happen. Let them fill in the flesh of it. And and especially the first film, like it's scary as hell because it feels like it's happening to you because these are people that you you've either either been in life or you know and i think that's what makes it so effective yeah yeah i totally agree there i'm sorry oh no go ahead caitlin i was just saying i agree yeah. i was i was gonna agree too i think um yeah mika and katie at the heart of this are are so important to this movie and i think that's the case in a lot of found footage too having these really solid realistic characters at the heart of it and uh, and also, I think, too, what's interesting about Katie and Mika, they're sort of annoying sometimes, yet you still do care about them because they feel real, perhaps because of how annoying they are at times. And they're also sort of boring, too, which <laughs> I, I sort of like that, too, because I think that added to a lot of realism here. Mm-hmm. And and it was really interesting watching this movie again after uh, like the COVID pandemic and everything, because <laughs> this movie feels really claustrophobic. And I felt that before, but watching it now, I just was very attuned to it and I sort of appreciated it even more. And then what else? I, yeah, I just think it's genuinely very scary. I think the, the way that the paranormal events escalate is so masterfully built into, I guess, not the script, but the way the film is designed. And I really appreciate too the, the, I don't know, maybe I'm getting a little academic here, but I like um, the fact that this movie came out right around the housing crisis Mm. is so fascinating to me to see this like, and this is the case in most of the films in the franchise, these sort of like huge houses with no real personality, but, uh, like pretty nicely designed and, and very big and I don't know, sort of looming and the this whole, the central thing is this debt that's owed to a demon. I just uh, I love, I love thinking about it like that. I, ooh, I didn't I didn't think about it until that last bit when you were saying like that the houses are like they're like, they're nice and they're like you know, big but don't have personality to them. But then it's like the house, you know, each house that we are introduced in throughout the films and, you know, certain houses come up multiple times, that becomes a thing of it. And it's because like, you know, Toby has imprinted his personality like (laughs) onto this house and just like kind of the looming nature of it. But yeah, like they're all very uh, claustrophobic. And, and yeah, Mika and Katie, I mean, Katie specifically, Katie is debatably the backbone of this franchise. 
if if I had to pick anybody, would be Katie. And her screams are so good too. Oh, the screams though, the, like, and it's also those annoying moments that I mean, that, like Caitlin was saying, they are annoying from time to time, and I love that about those characters. I love I love that we get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly with these characters in the first film, because that's the the first thing that pulls me out of a film, especially found footage is not relating to the characters and everyone, everyone likes to pick apart Heather Donahue breaking down at the end of Blair witch. Like it kind of became like a meme before there were memes, Mm -hmm. but to be honest, I would have had that same reaction, you know? And I, I think it's, it's, it's the ugly moments for characters that me, like as a viewer, I latch onto, you know, I want to see, realistic characters that are going through hell and don't react the best way each time you know and mika like it's so much fun to be annoyed by that guy in the first film <laughs> yeah like the they they feel very human uh, you know like they just feel it, it boils down to giving that relatability that you know that you want from a found footage film especially like this like this could be anybody this could be any couple this could be your friends this could be your sister and brother like you know, it could be whoever. And and I like that, yeah, they're they're kind of boring. They don't have like they don't have like distinct character traits, but at the same time, you know who they are as people though, just by their interactions. So it's like I like that. And they're not like overly attractive. Like they're I mean, they're I, I, I do think Mika's pretty cute. He's he's a cutie, but like and, and Katie's cute too, but they're not like, you know, they, it's not this sexy couple that we're following. You know, it's just some normal people. And then that'll kind of get a good transition to. So the uh, recurring segment on the show is the genre grinder. It's where we kind of we're already talking found footage films within that genre. But then we can kind of, you know, break that down into even more subgenres, grind it down nice and fine. And so I noticed that that's what I did with like my letterbox reviews for these movies were pointing out like what the the other like subgenre was because they hit like specific ones with each film and this one i don't because i think i don't find this one like as scary as most of them really like i think it might be one of the least scariest ones until you know kind of the end like because everything's very small in this film but at the core this is the this is like the relationship drama film of the franchise like this is you're watching this couple that are adjusting to living together in a new place and you know things are happening um mika resents katie because he she doesn't tell him about when she was younger the things that she experienced and she kind of played it off so all the tension is you know yeah we have scary things happening here and there but at the core it's you're you're just watching this couple kind of you know, bear with each other through a, you know, uncomfortable situation, which is moving when you're in a relationship, you know, like my best friend and his girlfriend just moved and oof, it was like a a mini nightmare, not gonna lie. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's actually like pretty common for the traditional haunted house subgenre, even going back to like the Victorian era with, with haunted house stories. Like it's usually connected somehow to some sort of domestic, some sort of domestic issue or or drama or something like that that somehow connected uh, to the the demons or the ghosts or whatever is in there. 
Um, but yeah, I, I really like that. Again, that whole aspect of them, I think that that just adds to the realism in general. That and there, there are moments in the film, uh, especially in the first film, that I think we can all relate to. I mean, I know any time that I need use a restroom at two or three in the morning, the lights are all out, and I have to walk down the stairs. You know, I'll hear the walls, or I'll hear, I'll hear like random sounds, and your mind instantly goes to the worst idea: Is there someone in my house? What's going on? You know, what the hell is going on? And I think that as a viewer, it's easy to really get into the first film because we've all experienced a lot of that stuff. It just happens to be that like what we've experienced are not hauntings; they're just our house making noises, you know, naturally, you know, so it's, it's easy to really jump on board with this first film. And what I think makes it so special is how contained the first film is because me personally, like I hate it when a franchise like starts out as something small and then ends up being this huge ambitious thing with so many different directions. Aside from this franchise, this is the one franchise that I actually welcome that I want to know more about it. I want to know everything. You know, I don't want to know that Michael Myers is explained to be some bratty kid with long hair that's a Kiss fan that kills his family because he's pissed about not going trick-or-treating. You know what I mean? Or led by a senior citizen cult. That's silly. But this film, like, the fact that it starts out small and it gets you invested in not only the characters but the story, it welcomes an entire franchise of just world-building. And I think it's so magical. Yeah, like it, it, it's it very much like takes its time, you know, with it being contained and just focusing on them. It it takes its time building the characters, so yeah, you're getting you know the 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 automatic tension there without knowing too much. They they trickle in the details, you know, especially through this one because what is interesting again is they didn't really have they didn't have plans for it to be a, a franchise or anything. So where the franchise like kind of succeeds is, you know, we'll see as the other films go on, they just took the the tiniest little things out of the story and then were able to like expand upon them, you know, throughout the throughout the franchise. So to like kind of get into uh, the the timeline aspect of this. So Paranormal Activity is released in 2009, but it is set in 2006, in September of 2006. September of 2006, just remember that. And then, so so that's where we're at, is September, they, they move in, and things start happening, and, um, you know, Mika is wanting to explore what's happening. He, he wants to kind of investigate and figure it out. Katie kind of just keeps on wanting to brush it off and, you know, things like that. And you could say that the catalyst of this is our first um, recurring fight between them, um, besides, like, you know, the the, the typical couple stuff is. Um, Mika wants to go forward. Um, he, he doesn't, he, he scoffs off a, a priest, you know, or, you know, wanting to come in and talk. Scoffs that off. But he... He wants to get to the bottom of himself. He wants to get this Ouija board. He wants to get this Ouija board real bad and do it himself. And I don't know if you guys know out there listening, a Ouija board is like giving all the spirits your phone number. It's saying, here, my DMs are open. Send me all the unsolicited demon dick pics. That's what you're asking for. 
when it comes to a Ouija board here. And I love that he goes, uh, my favorite line is when he like finally gets it and he's like, and he's like, ah, yeah, yeah, you see? And then she goes, I told you not, you promised, I made you promise. And he goes, I promised you I wouldn't buy one, a Ouija board. I borrowed this one. And I was like, Mika, that that's when I hopped off board of Mika. But in, in essence, Mika kind of sets off the chain of events for this whole franchise is where I'm getting at. Yeah, I, I loved that part, too. I also love the little trivia that that Ouija board came from Costco, apparently. <laughs> Demons <laughs> at You know what's crazy? What's crazy about that is, and this I'll make the story very quick so we could, you know, get into the films. A few years ago, I think it was like 2015, 2016, one of those years, I was in L.A. for uh, for a gig. Actually, uh, a Jerry, thing. could you hold on hey, one second? Go for it. I think when you're talking, uh, you might be like scraping something with the mic. Okay, I'll hold still. I don't but, know what that was, uh, but uh, pick up yeah. from uh, you're gonna tell your quick story. Yeah, for sure. Really quick story. Uh, in about 2015, I was in LA for an assignment, and a friend of mine's like, "Hey, I have this dinner party I need to go to. Do you want to go?" I was like, "Sure." It's it's for a friend of mine. They didn't tell me the name. Uh, it was the week that David Bowie passed away. So I went I went to this dinner party and it was this massive mansion. I mean like something out of like lifestyles of the rich and the famous kind of stuff. I went there and uh the door I knocked on the door. My friend and my a friend and I we knocked on the door and Oren Pelly opened the door. It was his house. <laughs> and the dinner party was at Oren Pelly's house to celebrate to celebrate David Bowie. So I go in there and this dude's in his sweats or Oren Pelly is in this crazy mansion, and that Ouija board is in the front, is in the living room, right there on the table, on the table with the burned effects. You know, it's it's burned, and it's just right there. And so in person, cool. it is one of the coolest looking things I've ever seen in my life. Damn, yeah, you gotta love seeing some uh, good horror memorabilia, and it is a it is a very visually interesting uh, Ouija board. Like it has like the the shiny finish to it, you know, and it like kind of has like that design instead of like being like the classic like wood to it. Um, it has it, it has a cooler look to it, and that I love the scene, yeah, where it catches on fire. Uh, in the in the shot is pretty pretty epic, but yeah. So uh, that I mean, and I can only imagine going to a party of any horror director. I feel like they're just known for throwing the best parties. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was nuts. Like there were menus there for every guest to decide what they wanted for dinner from different restaurants, you know? So like everyone wanted something different. So the dude just ordered from multiple places. And then after the dinner conversation went downstairs to this personal real theater that he had in his basement. And it was like the most surreal thing. You know, I couldn't even bring myself to talk about paranormal activity because I didn't want to, you know, put the guy on the spot, but like there were mm. all these things from that first film that were just in his house. It was nuts. Yeah, I love that, you know, I mean, even though he didn't go on to do more, um, he definitely, like, uh, championed this movie, like, very hard. And um, you got to give the credit where credit's due for, for Oren for uh, creating all this. Again, it's not my favorite of the franchise by any means, but he placed enough kernels to where, you know, we could kind of bloom this this bigger thing. So, like, we we get the reveal that Katie said, her and her sister experienced some paranormal things back in the day. 
Um, they don't really remember at all. Like, she remembers certain things. Uh, she remembers being scared, um, you know, but doesn't really know. So she just is, like, kind of just like, oh, like, I'm just supposed to kind of ignore it. But then um, as as things kind of amplify, you know, she she feels, you know, as, as she as she starts registering the fear, that's when she starts to experience the things more because, you know, we learn down the line, of course, the more you feed into the fear of Toby, the more powerful his presence gets. So then he's he's kinda he's kinda looming over her and then um and I I do love how a, a cool detail throughout the series is like so once Katie eventually gets possessed by Toby um you know her whole demeanor changes and like she like kind of has this like zoned in look and stuff a cool little detail is as uh when Toby is like uh inhabiting or like you know latched on to someone because he doesn't really possess them he kind of latches on they when they walk they make their footsteps like heavy like hooves because Toby is this like large presence they do it with Katie like throughout the first two films and then they do it like later with Hunter and like all the other characters, their footsteps become like extra loud because of Toby. Interesting little oh, detail. Cool. I did not notice that. Um, but speaking of the hooves, I did want to talk about the hooves before we leave this first uh, paranormal activity that um, the scene with the, the powder and the, the hoof or footprints I just wanted to say, too, and, and speaking, too, about the, the Ouija board on fire, I feel like there's so many moments in this first paranormal activity that could have been super cheesy and awful looking. Um, but the way that they do it is so effective. And I, I don't know, I'm really amazed and impressed by it, I guess, just by showing us just enough of of these moments. It, it's, it's enough to just get the imagination going, I guess. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to celebrate that a little bit because hoof prints and powder should be <laughs> a so, cheesy moment, but it's really effective. Oh, it's all about the little moments. So good. Yeah, yeah I, I think what makes those moments so effective is the fact that they're not like huge productions. You know, the camera just stays on, you know, one specific shot and we see the fire play out in front of us. You know, we don't get like unnecessary music. We don't get anything other than us as a viewer seeing these moments just happen and i think that makes it scarier for me yeah one like one thing that they also set with it and like you you mentioned it is you know most of the movie it's always just from like one angle we only get and really just a few different angles because they only have the one camera in this one so you know we're very limited and that's where the film kind of develops their style of using the empty space you know, like they're they're just presenting you with something and, you know, you're filling the frame and they'll make their scare so small. So that way, when you're like looking at this shot, like you just find yourself like when it's on a long thing, you just start looking at everything in the room because you're like, where's it going to be? What am I looking for here? Because you, you know it's going to be tiny and you don't want to miss it. But like, you know, whether it be the hooves in the powder or, um, you know, some of the other scenes that we'll see later. But, yeah, the, the use of the negative space is um, very, very effective here. So we, like, kind of... So we get to the end of the movie, and um, 
basically the the important information that we learned from this first one is a katie was haunted with her sister back in the day okay that's the one important thing um we learned that demons do not haunt houses they haunt people that's what we learned so you know it's not a straight up possession deal until i mean later it is but these it's not really possession it's it's like a latching type deal so we we learned that um and at the end of the film so um you know Katie has been having her bouts of sleepwalking that we've seen throughout the film and then she goes she's wondering she goes downstairs and then we just hear just a bang and a bang and then the most blood-curdling scream that is just I mean yeah Caitlin pointed out earlier it is it's an all-timer like her the the the, the tone and the, the shrillness of it is just so good and then, like, you know, the way she's, like, really pleading for Mika there. And then Mika runs downstairs. We get a scuffle. And then, you know, we're still just in the bedroom angle. So all that's going on downstairs, and it's just the bedroom angle. And then we get the famous Mika gets thrown at the camera by a crazed, um, possessed Katie. And then she um, goes up to the camera and... So I I did see some of the other um, endings, but so one ending, the original studio ending before deciding it was going to be like go on was it was going to be Katie walks up to the camera smiling and then she slits her throat that is available on the home release, um, which you can watch. And then the original um, uh, the there was an unfilmed ending where it was going to be Katie killing Mika with the camera. And it would have been from the point of view of the camera. And it would have, I think that would have been pretty, pretty fun. Yeah. A little peeping Tom action there. Um, that would have been interesting. Because I think what's cool, too, about those shots, where, where it is just this, the, this sort of stable camera, um, I think what makes them so scary, too, besides uh, what you said about uh, forcing us to sort of do these paranoid viewings of the film and like carefully looking at all that negative space. I think also it's like only in found footage can you really be left alone sort of from your own perspective. Like the characters are elsewhere and we're just sort of watching from this camera, watching from a sort of a, a perspective or a position that no one else occupies except for the camera. So there's sort of this scary feeling of, Oh my God, Mika and Katie are now downstairs and we're stuck up here in this creepy bedroom. Um, so yeah, to, to, to be, to have the camera kill Mika, that could have been interesting to be in that, I guess that perspective. Yeah. I guess I don't know. Maybe they didn't want to be too on the nose with it. Which ending would you yeah. have preferred Jerry? I've always been such a huge fan of the uh, Katie, you know, kind of cutting her own throat ending. But only if if it was only going to be like one film, that that's my preferred ending. But being such a huge fan of every other sequel and kind of like how much the world building came, you know, came to be like, I, I prefer the ending that we have. That said, one of my biggest pet peeves or really my only pet peeve about the first film is that kind of like typical demon face we get at the very last shot of the first film you know Same. what i mean like like it's the one thing that pulls me out of that movie but i mean thankfully it pulls me out only for half a second because the movie's over at that point 
You know, like I, if she would have killed him and walks over to the camera and just grabbed it or did something else, that would have been great. But I think other than that little demon shot at the very end, I, 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 I when it comes to the whole series, I, I like that ending. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if it, if it was just going to be the one off the throat slit would have been pretty sweet. Um, but yeah, you, you'll definitely kind of learn throughout the series that some of the weaker moments are when they do indulge a little bit more in the visual effects department and do some of that kind of stuff, you know, cause they do, they do this. These are the blockbuster horror movies. So they got to throw in, you know, the, the, the extra little bit of scare for people. However, I will notice that up until the fourth film, these first three films are pretty light on like, you know, quote unquote, cheap jump scares. They're all earned jump scares for for these first couple of films. So I will give it that. Uh, but yeah, the the thing, the only thing I'll say about the first film that um, my big pet peeve about it is um, I feel like it the the middle is a little bit repetitive, even though this film is like very short still um it's a little bit repetitive um and then but once it does kind of get to that third act um we we definitely kick it up a little bit so the film ends it says on october 11th 2006 katie's whereabouts are unknown and then we we fade out into a paranormal activity too The second entry of the franchise was directed by Todd Williams and introduces screenwriter Christopher Landon. Remember that name. Um, You'll hear that quite a bit throughout the franchise, but then um, he has made quite a name for himself in uh, recent years uh, with his own horror films. But So he enters in as a writer along with a couple of other writers. Uh, This is also where editor Gregory Plotkin comes in. He edits all the films up to um, him taking over as director in the sixth entry. So Paranormal Activity 2, what I I went into this one thinking it was like one of my least favorites. And then rewatching it, I was like, hey, this is a lot better than I remember it being. It's and what I think is why I if you think of Paranormal Activity 1 and 2 more like because they're parallel films. It's not a sequel. The The second film is also going on 2006, a couple months before the events of Paranormal Activity 1, and we're following Katie's sister, Christy. And it's more like a like 1A, 1B situation. Or I got myself thinking, like, what if they marketed it as like the first one, Paranormal Activity, colon, Katie. And then second one, Paranormal Activity 2, colon, Christy and they could have like kind of had that trend going on maybe a little corny but like I do kind of think I that it these two films work very well together separately not as they both have a little bit more flaws but together their positives kind of make up for each other's flaws so um I ended up liking this one uh more than I remembered uh what about you Jerry I you see the crazy thing is when this one came out the second one, I wasn't a huge fan of it initially, you know, and I, I revisited a, a month or two ago and I loved it. And I don't know if either of you remember, but for a while, it's impossible to find now if you're not on eBay. But for a while, they 
re-edited the first three films into one film on home video for a little bit. What? Yeah. Yeah. Like, there was a version of it where it was the first three films in one movie. Which I, I wish they still, like, put out. Because I've been dying to find a copy of that. Because it's out of print now. Whoa. But what's cool about this film, the second one, is, that, like you said, it's not a sequel per se. But it's it's a before, during, and after the first film. And mm-hmm. I think that's so unique for a film to do. You know, like, we get an explanation of everything from the first film. And then we get more and we're giving we're given so many characters like new characters to kind of like really latch onto. The only thing about the second film that when I watched it in the theater that it kind of pulled me out of is when you watch the first film, you have no idea who Katie and Mika are because you haven't seen them in other films. The the only thing that pulled me out of the second one, even for a short amount of time, is the character of Christy because walking in, it's like oh I remember that actor from Sons of Anarchy. You know, like I, I think with found footage films, they work best. When you don't know the people in them, because it's, it mm-hmm. feels more authentic, it feels realistic, and that's the only thing about this film. But yeah, yeah, I'm a huge fan of this one now. Yeah, I didn't even know she was in that, so I didn't recognize her because I've never watched Sons of Anarchy, I guess. But uh, so I didn't have that. But I agree with you that it's best to have sort of unknowns, I guess, in uh, found footage films. I I really like this one too, and I also remember seeing when I first saw this, not really liking it so much. Maybe I was being a bit of a, like, I don't know, like, horror hipster. Like, <laughs> it's not as good as the first one. Because mm-hmm. I, I tend to sometimes, unfortunately, I had that attitude when I was younger a lot. Um, but rewatching it now, I was I was really impressed. Um, again, I think the same with the first. I, I feel like uh, the way they build up to, not really jump scares, but just the way they build tension leading to these uh, paranormal events, I guess, is is really good. Um, I found myself very tense through most of this this one. I also thought it was a lot of fun to have a possessed pool cleaner. I was happy to see <laughs> that here. And also, we sort of have a final girl here a little bit with we, uh, with Allie. We do. So yeah, um, with with the second one. I, like I said, I really liked it working as a parallel sequel. Um, It is very unique. We don't have really too many of these at all. And and it does work in, because it is tough because they're trying to, like, this is the first one to try to connect and, like, go in a direction, you know. So they are, they're trying to pull from the details that they did have in the first one. And the only thing that, like, hinders it is that we never saw Christy in the first film. And if if they had had Christy in the first film, then it wouldn't have been as jarring, I guess. And then, you know, and then also having an, an actress that has been known for something else as well. I wasn't some Sons of Anarchy either, but, like, she did, like, just, like, also kind of look more like an actress. I don't know um, how to yeah. describe that. <laughs> But, um, but then, yeah, so you, you have this one come in. This is the more straightforward, um, haunted house possession film of the series in in terms of the, the subgenre that they're going for here. Um, and then, you know, the Christy and Daniel didn't feel as authentic as a couple, but really it's more just because Daniel sucks. Like he is, I think think maybe the worst character in the film maybe he's he's down there pretty low yeah. um yeah i'd agree he's definitely in the running at least 
Like, Daniel's a piece of shit. <laughs> we will learn later. I said, I think it's the goatee. It is the goatee. He has It's the goatee paired <laughs> with the rectangle glasses. Like, I don't know. It's, yeah. yeah. That's a that's a look. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, Daniel, uh, not damn Daniel here. This is oh oh damn Daniel, and so so you have this one set in two thousand six, um, just a month before, like a month and a half before PA one, and so Christy and Daniel have also moved into a new place. Um, you have Allie, who is Daniel's daughter from a previous uh, marriage. And then um, they just had a baby, Hunter. Um, they just had a, a baby boy, a baby boy, Hunter. Very important. Um, Hunter is, he's like, a, they, they, they kind of make it weird because, like, they show him when he's young. But then he's, he's like a year and a half, almost two, because Hunter was actually born in 2005, not in 2006. Because they, they showed him as, like, a newborn, and then they just, like, kind of skipped ahead, and then he, like, had hair and stuff. I was like, whoa, like, what's going on here? But, so, he, he's, like, a year and a half in the, in, for the most of the movie. And, um, so, it's like, so, so, we've been hearing in the first one that Katie and Christy had a past with paranormal activities uh, happening in their lives. And so, Christy um, is... Because Christy's the younger one. Christy is the younger sister. And we find out later she kind of experienced more of it. So, because Katie drops into this film and that's where, you know, and I, I kind of forgot how much Katie was in this film. I remember she, like, popped up. Like, and Mika pops up as well. But, like, Katie's in this film, like, quite a bit. Like, I almost kind of forgot about that. And... Uh, so Katie was the one that was like, hey, like you were scared all the time. You were dealing with all the shit and, you know, I'm just trying to forget about it. You should forget about it. So that's kind of Katie's attitude. But Christie's a little bit more perceptive to haunted things and haunted things kind of happen a little bit faster here. We also have a uh, Martine, the housemaid as well. Um, I forgot that this was made in 2010 where people were very mean to Mexican housekeepers. Uh, justice for Martine. She, she's too good for this family, guys. Like, that, that's our first character of, like, too good for, for this movie. Uh, yeah. Poor Martine. She shouldn't have come back and helped, and helped them at the end. Come on. Yeah, no, they didn't deserve it. They did not deserve her help. Well, who, who fires? Who fires a maid for looking out for them? You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it, I agree. It, that character sucks. Not Martin, <laughs> but the, the guy Daniel. <laughs> yeah, Dick Daniel. He uh, he. So when when the activities start, Martine is the first one that feels the bad energy of the house. She's saying like, "There's a bad energy here. I feel it." And then while like she's doing her thing, she just tries. She just does a little, um, a little sage burning just to cleanse. Nothing even crazy. Like she she wasn't doing a. She was literally uh, saging the house. And then Daniel was like, "Whoa! I don't need this witchy shit in my house." And he like kind of just like freaks out. And I was just like, "Oh!" And he's just like, it, uh, I, "I just can't do it." And so he fires her <laughs> for saging the house. And I was just like, "Wow." 2000, 2006, when saging was just super witchy, you know, compared to the witchiness that people do today. <laughs> Dude, there's there's always smoke in my house, which 
you know, I think it fits with his podcast. Hey-o. Yeah, I just, I thought that was just, like, so funny that, like, he was just, like, very, very weird about that. He, like, slightly racist. There's a part where um, he, they, him and Allie are, like, talking about somebody, like, shitting in the bathroom. And then he goes, it was Martine. It was a stenchilada. And I was like, oh, I hate you, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Daniel just sucks. Yeah, so Daniel sucks, but his, his yeah. daughter Allie, she does not. Um, Allie is a nice addition to uh, the franchise here. She is like kind of our, she is our stand-in final girl um, for for this one, and you know, so she's already she she gets along with Christy. It's not like it's not like the like weird like stepmom vibes or anything. But Allie does like kind of you know just like see things a little differently, and then it's. Her and her boyfriend that do a Ouija board that uh, welcome the things to start happening into the house. Um, we do have th- that scene is uh, funny though because the the boy's whole thing to try and get Allie's pants is to uh, write pussy hunt on the Ouija board while he's like, I don't know what's happening. Is that you? Um, Has that? worked like that's the worst plan of action for that guy <laughs> a smooth move <laughs> yeah i was just like yeah i was like i was like did that work and then i mean they go away i'm assuming it worked i mean we we don't really get confirmation but uh but she she was she didn't make him go home so i guess yeah. she was into it yeah who Allie's- knows who knows what Allie's thing is no, totally. Allie's also a character that I had wished that we would have gotten to see a lot more of in the franchise. Like, yes. we don't get to see her again until, I think, marked ones. Yeah, yeah. I think, think you're right. Yeah. And it, even then, only for, like, a second. Yeah, she's only in, she's literally in one scene in, in marked ones. And I remember, because I, I feel like they might have, they mentioned her in four, but but we didn't see her in four. But yeah, like... She could have been another great through line uh, for the franchise, uh, for sure. Um, so because oh, go ahead, Jerry. No, no, I was just gonna say that. Yeah, I agree that she could have been like a really good through line because when we eventually meet her in marked ones, she she's pretty knowledgeable about what's going on. Uh-huh. So it would have been kind of cool to see her character build with this knowledge of you know researching and kind of helping everything going on. I mean, we yeah. do, we do have a a new paranormal activity movie coming, and I think she would be like a great like. What if she became like the Constantine of the paranormal <laughs> activity universe? That would be pretty cool. That was sort of her energy in marked ones a little bit, which right? actually threw me off because I was watching them in a really weird order just because I wanted to start with the ones I hadn't really seen or remembered. So when I watched that, I was like, am I supposed to know who this Allie person is? And then I got to rewatching number two and I was like, oh, but yeah, they, they, they set her up as like a Constantine or like a Van Helsing, like badass, like, oh, six plus or yeah, six plus six plus six, add them <laughs> up 18 or whatever, whatever she said. <laughs> yeah, she seemed to be like, like they wanted her to be more important than they allowed her to be in that one. But yeah. That would be cool for the new one. That would be. Uh, Allie is where we get the information in PA2, where we get a little background on uh, this possession situation, 
where um, she is the one that finds out that people have been that you can make a deal with a demon in exchange for your for a male born in your family. And um, they and she realizes that Hunter is the first boy to be born from this family since the 1930s. So uh, Hunter is obviously a special boy. And that is what um, our entity is after in this film. This entity is um, trying to get to Hunter, um, protecting Hunter. Shout out to Abby, the goodest girl. Um, our first, our first paranormal pet. There's lots of pets in in the Paranormal Activity franchise. And uh, shout out to Abby, uh, such a sweet girl, always guarding Hunter. She's literally always. Uh, Abby is the only non-main character to be featured on a Paranormal Activity poster. In the in the Paranormal Activity two poster, the main one, it's Abby guarding Hunter in the bedroom. That's pretty neat. Nice. She deserves it. <laughs> I also think it's fun that this this baby boy's name is Hunter, because maybe you might say the entity is a baby boy hunter. Mm-hmm. A hunter of that baby boys. Good. Wow. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I see you, Christopher Landon. I see what you were planning. Um, but yeah, so we have Toby is at, or well, Toby still hasn't been named yet. Toby isn't named Toby until the third one, but you know, we just obviously know it's Toby is after Hunter in this film. Um, and we get some pretty good scares in this one. Um, again, just like some really small moments, but man, when Christy gets dragged, Ooh, it's a goodie. It's like hers is, I think her. Christy getting dragged is the best drag of the Paranormal Activity franchise. Like Katie gets Katie gets like a little one, and then we get a good one in PA three. But Christy in this one, she like gets dragged down the stairs and she goes back up and then gets drugged back down again. And she's like holding on to the end of the stairs and she's like slightly off the like staircase. I it's it's good. I I want to see like the behind the scenes of like the green screen man just like holding her legs or something well we always get like so many like youtube uh like cut videos of like different deaths in slasher films and stuff but i want i just want like a a clip of just how many like people get dragged in the paranormal activity films like i want to watch that on loop what I, I don't know what would be the better like backing track like it could be a i mean the jackass theme is pretty classic. I think that would be a good montage. <laughs> Maybe that'll be my that'll be my promo for this week. I'll 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 try to see if I can make this happen. <laughs> the, my my favorite thing to do is annoy my wife with really bad new metal that has no that has no business like existing, like the worst songs ever. Like it's the best thing ever. So I I think that like a montage video of all the drags set to like some really bad new metal song like you know let the bodies hit the floor or something like that would be great yeah i mean that is (laughs) that's the choice i mean you got the lyric you got the lyrics in it too oh that's so perfect yeah toby toby loves dragging some bitches uh Mm -hmm. throughout the franchise um i really do love it so um as as the um hauntings are amplifying uh katie comes over and now at this point, this is three weeks into the house and Katie comes over and she is starting to now have stuff happen at her place. 
too. So this is where we kind of have like the the sync up here for a minute where they're, you know, almost on the same timeline and they're both experiencing stuff. And again, Katie is trying to ignore it and push it down. And this is still at the beginning of Katie and uh, Mika's haunting. Um, but so the, she, uh, they're starting to experience their stuff. And, um, and then shortly after this, though, like Christy is getting really, really scared. And then this is where she gets possessed, which is the drag scene where it takes her all the way down into the basement. And then Christy is now bitten. She's marked, even, you might say. Yeah, yeah. that was horrifying. The, the bait. I mean, in this franchise, anytime anyone gets locked in a room is always <laughs> bad news. Yeah, it's never good. She's locked downstairs, and Hunter is crying upstairs by himself. So, um, Daniel, finally, he gets comes to his senses. He calls Martine back and says, help us. I'm so sorry. Help us. And so there, uh, we figure out through through Martine, and then did, did they have a demonologist come into this one? I can't remember. But um, to where they learn about, like, transferring the the possession or is it all martin it was all martin all martin yeah fuck yeah it was all that's martin. that's that's a big reason that i just can't stand daniel it's like <laughs> i understand that he's trying to look out for his wife but who the fuck transfers a demon to someone else and is able to sleep at night let know? alone let yeah. alone his sister-in-law like that's that's you know his family too and you know so it's like yeah, he was. He, he says under the guise of like I'm doing anything I can do to protect my family because Allie protests this. Allie's like, no, there's got to be another way. We can figure out something else. And he's like, nope, nope. The transfer. <laughs> like, let me just get get this problem out of my house. Like he couldn't he couldn't transfer it to like Eli Roth or something. It had to be. <laughs> or like find like a distant relative because it only had to be a blood relative. It didn't have yeah. to be someone like di- like yeah. He could have found a third cousin that lived in Idaho or something. Or like know. in Ring where you give it to one of the older people in your family who's about to die anyway. Yeah, <laughs> like that's the, you know that makes sense. Give it, yeah, give it to one of the witches in three. They're old. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So so they they do this ritual and this is like where we get like the like you know classic exorcism scene in a in a possession film you know so this is again like the like through and through like straightforward possession film and the in the ritual they burn one of the childhood photos and um I didn't mention it when we were talking PA1 but that was one of the spooky occurrences that happened is um, this old childhood photo just, like, appeared in, in uh, Katie and Mika's house and it had, like, singed tips on it, too. It did. So that was, like, a good, uh, a nice way to keep the continuity going um, between the two films. So, like, they do this and it gets transferred. Christy is all good. They're doing their thing for a few weeks. And now it catches up to the end of PA1. So... You know, after the transference, that's when PA1 happens. And then at the end, Katie, who just walks off the screen at the end of PA1, she returns, she, we see where she goes in PA2. She goes, she goes and snaps Daniel's neck, first of many to come of the signature Katie neck yeah. snap. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, what a, what a deserving one, too. Like, I was very happy, like, 
Daniel's just sitting on his couch and then gets his next snap. I was like, yeah, fuck him. Jeez. Like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, go to Yeah, right? I'm the worst person to think of music for these films because, like, you know, let the bodies hit the floor with being dragged. Like, Buster Rhymes, Break Your Neck would have been really good during <laughs> those scenes. You know? Yeah, I think you're the best person to think of music for this yeah. movie. Yeah, right. Blumhouse, hire me. Uh, the paranormal playlist by Jerry Smith coming soon. Um, cause we could <laughs> definitely get all the montages, but yeah, so she, she snaps Daniel's neck. Um, Allie is away on a trip. We, we, they, they never said when she went away, but she did though. Allie's not around. And then, um, goes upstairs, kills Christy and then steals Hunter. And we end the movie with the last shot of Katie taking Hunter out of the crib walking away and the uh, text says that Katie and Hunter's whereabouts are unknown. Um, like I said, Paranormal Activity 2, especially when you pair it with 1, is a very good film. Maybe not on its own, it has a lot of holes in it. The acting is just not quite as good. Uh, the camera quality is like too good for it as well. Um, just like there's, you know, there's, there's some things that they just like didn't hit because it wasn't Oren doing it, you know? So just like they were still trying to figure out how they were going to continue the franchise, but for having the task of, you know, trying to continue a, a series on from a film that wasn't planned to, you know, all in all worked out pretty well. And like revisiting this one, it's better than I remember. It's still not great, but it is better than I remember. Yeah. And I think it's pretty impressive that they didn't just like redo the first one or something like that. And it makes sense still. I think, I mean, I know the thing with the uh, found footage films is like, why are, why are they filming this? And then also, why do we have this footage? Which is hard for a sequel. But I think this still makes at least enough sense for me um, that it didn't feel like cheap. Like it wasn't like a totally different family that's like, hey, let's uh, let's film this. And oh, it just so happens to be the same demon as that other family you watched last time <laughs> it's it like at least had like a it's it was a connection it made sense it it told a new part of the story but yeah i think it was pretty good yeah i'd agree they could have been a lot lazier about it and they definitely weren't like i wouldn't like call this a lazy sequel by any means like it's quite the opposite it had it was doing a lot to to you know keep things going so i give it i give it its prop so now, after after um, catching up on, so we, we see, you know, what happened to Katie, see what happens to Christy, it's time to go back in time. I hope you guys are enjoying our conversation about the Paranormal Activity franchise so far, but... We were having so much fun that this conversation ended up being a lot longer than I anticipated, and I didn't want to cut any of it out because it's all so good. So, this episode is going to be cut into two episodes. So, we're going to go ahead and end this episode right here, but the next episode is already available for you to listen to, so that way you can hear our thoughts on Paranormal Activities 3 through 6. And at the end of that episode, we also give our final ranking of the Paranormal Activity franchise. So, so go ahead and take a break if you need to. You can come back and listen to the second episode later. 
or just go ahead and hop into it right now where we will pick up right where we left off talking about Paranormal Activity 3. See you guys on the other side. <laughs> 